Well, again, good morning to everyone. It is uh, great to be with you this morning. Special thanks to the choir for, uh, for praising us out at 8.30 this morning, getting up with the sun and, uh, and worshiping there at our early service. And special thanks, Christiana and the, and the team for leading us in worship. We've got more of that after the message. We wanted to set the message up a little bit and then enter into some more worship uh, as we close the service out. So hang on. There's more of that good stuff coming because uh, that is some good stuff. Hey, if you're new, again, thanks for being here. Uh, you came on a great day. We are kicking off a new sermon series today, uh, the series entitled By the Book, and I'm excited to uh, set the series up for you and let you know what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks and even months. Before I do that, though, let me pray again for us together. God, would you uh, enter into this room now? We know that you are already present, but we ask for even more of you. And our prayer is the song that we just sang, that we would go deeper, deeper in your truth, deeper in your word, deeper into the life that you have created uh, for us to enjoy and to experience. So take us deeper now. Um, that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a big sports nut, so this time of year is one of my favorites as all the teams are, uh, are up and running. NFL season, college football, U.S. Open tennis, uh, baseball runs. This is a great time of year for sports fans. And recently I came across an article, made me stop and think. It listed the worst trades in professional sports history. And I think uh, being a Denverite, if you will, you will enjoy some of these trades. Let me share a few of, of them with you. In the year 1919, the Boston Red Sox traded future baseball icon Babe Ruth. They traded him for $125,000 and a loan to finance the No No Nanette musical. This is quite simply the worst trade in all of sports history because Babe Ruth went on to become a god. Uh, and he was also traded to the arch rival New York Yankees, and they dominated the Red Sox for the next 20 years. And the no-no Nanette musical, it was a big no-no. Let's just, let's just say that. In 1956, the St. Louis Hawks traded Bill Russell to the Boston Celtics for Ed McCauley, Cliff Hagen. Uh, Bill Russell went on to become the best NBA center of all time and won a record 11 NBA championships. And you've probably heard a thing or two about the Boston Celtics. Chances are you haven't heard anything about the Hawks, Ed McCauley, or Cliff Hagen. In 1996, the day before the draft, Charlotte traded its 13th draft pick to the Lakers in exchange for aging center Vladi Divac. This is a horrible trade. The Lakers turned that pick into Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant became one of the best Lakers of all time, five NBA championships, and our J-High minister uh, actually worships him, I think. <laughs> We're trying to work through that, though. It's a little awkward. And Vladi Divac, yeah, nobody worships him at all, ever. This one should resonate with you. It, after drafting him number one in the 1983 NFL draft, the Baltimore Colts traded a one John Elway to the Denver Broncos for Mark Herman, Chris Hinton, and a first-round pick. And we all know how that turned out, didn't we? Thank you, Colts. Thank you very much. See, the world of sports is filled with trades that never really panned out too well, full of trades that are just awful and awkward. What's crazy is that the, the Bible is full of similar trades. Adam and Eve traded paradise for an empty promise and a piece of fruit. A man named Esau let his appetite get the better of him and ended up trading his entire inheritance for a bowl of soup. And a man named Samson traded the affections of a beautiful woman for the secrets to his power and his strength. And he ended up losing it all. To those trades, I would say, ooh, oops, and ouch. 
That's what happens when you make a bad trade. One of the worst trades in all of Scripture, though, is the one that we read about in Exodus 32. God's people had just been delivered from 400 years of captivity and slavery, Egyptian bondage. And this wasn't just any old deliverance. This was one of the most miraculous demonstrations of God's power in the world since the world had even been created. This is the ten great plagues. This is a pillar of smoke and fire. This is the parting of the Red Sea. If you don't know the story, Exodus has to be on the top of your reading list. And even though they had personally witnessed and just walked through all of this amazing stuff firsthand and together, they start talking about trading away their God for another one. For one reason or another, call it boredom, call it stupidity. I don't know what you'd call it, but the Israelites decided to melt all of their gold and to make a giant statue with it. Now, this decision wasn't inherently evil or sinful, but that cannot be said for the next few decisions that they made. Exodus 32, verse 4, read it with me. When the people saw this giant golden statue... They exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who just brought you out of the land of Egypt. To which all of us should say, what? Aaron saw how excited the people were. And so he built an altar in front of this calf. And then he announced tomorrow will be a great festival to, to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking. And they indulged in pagan revelry. Whenever a biblical writer says they indulged in pagan revelry, you know it's not a good thing, okay? Psalm 106 perfectly summarizes, though, what happened in this moment. Psalm 106, verse 19. The people made a calf at Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. Now listen to this language. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done such great things in Egypt, such wonderful things in the land of Ham, such awesome deeds at the Red Sea. And that is just incredible language. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. Kind of makes the Babe Ruth deal not seem so horrific, doesn't it? According to the Bible, whenever you worship someone or something other than God, you are more or less trading someone or something for God. You are trading God in for that someone or something. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this trade isn't going to work out too well for you. That's exactly what God's people did. And we stand back. If you're like me, you read this story and you think, how ridiculous. How ridiculous that you would trade God himself in for gold. How ludicrous that someone would, would deal the creator for something that he created. Or worse yet, for something that you created. How absurd that you would trade the infinite things of heaven itself for the finite things of this world. How foolish. Oh, wait. That's what we all do. Oh, wait. That's, that's my story, too. See, it started in the garden. It really showed up in the life of Esau. It came to a head at the base of Mount Sinai. But exchanging God for lesser things, trading God in for lesser things, is something we're all prone to do. Romans 1 says this, although they claimed to be wise, these people became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is alone and forever to be praised. So Paul is talking to a certain group of people right here, but he's talking about all people. He is describing more or less how deep in our DNA is this tendency to trade the indescribable things of God for the insignificant things of the world. He's saying that like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, we take that which God has given to us, his power, his presence, his promises, and we trade them for something pathetic. Oh, you want God? Sure. Here you go. What do you got in return? Oh, a whole lot of nothing? That's okay. I'll still make the trade. Now, granted, I haven't seen a whole lot of people literally bowing down to a statue of a cow or worshiping a cow. Although I will say this, people do strange things for a free Chick-fil-A sandwich. Do they not? I mean, come on. That's for another sermon. But we, we, we bow down to and we worship so many other things. More on that in a minute. Paul goes on to say here in Romans 1 that this trade that we make on this spiritual level with God, it ends up manifesting itself on a whole bunch of other levels. This trade that we make vertically with God, trading his truth for lies, his glory for more goodies, that ends up manifesting itself horizontally. So adultery, homosexuality, pornography, lust, greed, abuse, neglect, pride, materialism, hatred, any sin, every sin for that matter, it comes back to the fact that you traded God away. You just made a really bad trade. And when you trade him, you start to make all kinds of other crazy, foolish, sinful trades. So you trade God away, and then suddenly you're trading away natural relationships with unnatural ones. You trade God away, and suddenly you're trading your spouse away for somebody else's spouse. You trade God away, and suddenly you're trading your purity for more pornography. You trade God away, and suddenly you're trading your contentment for more covetousness, your family for a few more bucks. When you make this bad deal, you're going to see it manifest itself in a lot of other bad deals the rest of your life. Like I said before, we don't worship golden statues, but we worship and bow down to plenty of other things, don't we? I mean, who needs a golden calf, a statue of a grass-eating bull, when you can bow down and worship at the altar of a 3,000-square-foot home with a three-car garage and hand-scraped wood floors? Who needs a golden calf when you can sacrifice yourself and your life on the altar of a certain body type or waist-to-hip ratio or certain physique? Who needs a golden calf when you got money, celebrities, athletes, boyfriends, hobbies, children, causes, junk, stuff? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I came across a fascinating picture this week, and it's hard to argue with. Worship then and worship now. I'm not sure if you can see that picture, but maybe we actually do bow down to a golden calf still today. Now you might be thinking, oh, just wait a second, Thomas, come on, I don't, this is idolatry, that seems a little excessive, worship of these things, come on, we're not going that far, really? Here's the problem, see, most of us assume that since our worship doesn't involve golden cows or Hindu statues, doesn't involve incense and sacrifices, it doesn't involve Roman artwork or Greek figurines, that we're not engaging in idolatry, that we're not worshiping these things, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's exactly what it is, it's worship. See, worship is actually short for another word, worth-ship. I guess they were just too lazy to say worth-ship, so you had to say worship. I don't know. It's like saying cray-cray instead of crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? It's the same two syllables. Just say crazy. Anyway, sorry. I digress. 
But see, to worship something means that you are spending time and energy and devotion and resources assigning worth to that something. You are saying, this one thing is worth it to me. It's worth a lot to me, and so I'm going to exalt it. I'm going to lift it up. I'm going to spend time on it. I'm going to spend money. I'm going to think about it. It's worth it. And so you worship it. You with me? And every second we spend or every dollar we spend, every click we make or every clap we give, it's an act of worth-ship. You are showing that this is worth it to you. The question is, are you saying that God is worth it, or are you saying that your stuff is worth it? Are you saying that your goodies and your gadgets are worthy of your praise, or are you saying that God is worthy of your praise? Because your actions, your attitudes, your spending habits, what you think about when you're not thinking about anything, what does it exalt? What is it showing is worth it? That's the question we got to wrestle with. And you might be thinking, well, that, that's crazy, because in anything, everything in life could become a God. I mean, that means anything in life could be worshipped. Yeah, exactly. You ever think about why the first two commandments are what they are? No other gods, no idolatry. Now, that was either like time-specific and only for guys that had golden calves back in the day, or that is true in all of time because that's part of the human heart. We love other little G-gods. We love idols. We love to show that other things are worth it besides God. See, anything in your life can turn from that which you received from God and can gladly give back to God to being your God. Anything and everything can go from that which you lay at God's throne to that which is actually sitting on God's throne. For me, it's, it's my house. I love DIY projects and fixing things up. I like a pristine home with new updated everything. And if I'm not careful, that can take over all of my life. My girls can become uh, an idol in my life. I can exalt them. If I can say everything I do is for them. They are worth my time, all my money, all my energy. They're worth it. My hobbies, I'll be on the golf course all day long if you let me. But you see, those things weren't meant to be on the throne. They were given to me by the one who sits on the throne. And if I get that mixed up, my life's going to get pretty messed up. There's a great story about three princes whose father, the king, he died in battle one day. After learning of their father's death, these three brothers started to fight with one another over who would be next to sit on the throne. And the fight turned literal. They all climbed into this chair and started kicking and punching and pushing each other to see who would sit in the chair. Well, because of all the weight and all the motion and all the movement and commotion, a few minutes into this scuffle, the floor literally underneath the, the, the chair broke apart. And all three of the guys fell two stories down into the dungeon. Now, I wish I could tell you that all three died because that would make just a great dramatic punchline, right? Like, ha ha! But they didn't anyway, they were fine. But the point is still the same, is it not? Only one person can be on the throne at a time. Only one person can be on the throne at a time. And so that thing that you think about more than anything else, that thing that you would be hard-pressed to hand over to me right now, that thing that brings you great joy and meaning and purpose, the thing you talk about more than anything else, the thing you post about more than anything else, the thing you tweet or share more than anything else, that thing most likely is sitting on that chair. There's a problem with that, though, because only one person can sit on the throne at a time. And that throne was not designed for those things or those people or those hobbies or those experiences. That throne is God's. It's God's alone. The throne of your heart was designed to be ruled by God and nobody else. 
I'm sure your house is nice. I'm sure your kids are the smartest, coolest, funniest kids around. I bet your body's in great shape. I love that you're doing all these cool activities. I imagine your hobbies are exciting and life-giving. But those things are nothing more than a sculpture of a grass-eating cow. And when you spend all of your life thinking about that stuff, spending money on that stuff, spending all your energy and time on that stuff, you are simply bowing down and worshiping nothing more than a statue of a grass-eating cow. I hate to say it that way, but that seems to be what the scripture is saying. That brings us to our new sermon series. We've entitled it By the Book, and here's why. If you want to know what a particular society worships, if you want to know what a particular culture deems worthy, what they think is worth it, then simply look at their publications. Just look at their books. Look at the magazines on the racks or the publications on the shelves. We put all these books up here because we thought we wanted to give you a visual. If you want to know what's important in our world, if you want to know what people bow down and worship, then just come and read some of these books. And by the way, these are all free to take. We don't want these around here. All right, so if you can, after service, come, grab a few books and go. That'd be awesome. Anyway, this week I had to travel a little bit. So I was in the airport on Thursday night, and I spent some time looking at the magazine options at the the airport. I was going to purchase a few of them to show them. This is literally what's on the cover of the magazines on our rack, but I was too cheap to buy five magazines. So I was just like, I'll just tell you instead, all right? I hope you can trust me. You have one section that's all about the Benjamins, baby, right? Fortune, Forbes, Entrepreneur, Money Magazine, which, by the way, this month, uh, hey, make your first million by the time you're 30. Okay. (laughs) You have a whole other section that's all about your stuff, your possessions, good housekeeping, better homes and gardens, real simple house, HGTV the magazine, beautiful traditional house, car and driver, automobile weekly. You have a whole other section that's all about your body. All about the bedroom, GQ, Esquire, Maxim, Playboy, and men's health. Men's health this month promises scary good sex. I guess that's in light of like Halloween coming up. I'm not sure. Men's fitness talks about primal sex. I have no clue where that one's going. And my personal favorite, women's health, which claimed that the best cure for the flu is sex. Aren't you excited about that? As a married man, I'm like, awesome, no flu shot. Anyway, it seems as if the God of our age, the things we worship, the things we bow down to, the things that we think are worth it, boil down to three little words. I've shared them with you before. Sex, stuff, and success. Otherwise known as sex, money, and power. Sex, money, and power. And although I, I flipped through some of the magazines, there was some interesting stuff in there. I tried to pick up on a few tips or whatever, and it would be really cool if the cure for the flu was sex, especially for married people. But here's the thing. I'm not saying those magazines are evil, or that it's bad, or that you shouldn't pick those things up and read them. But what I'm saying is that they're all saying the same thing. When you read any of these books or any of those magazines, they're all saying the same thing. More. Right? More. More stuff. More sex. More success. More. More is the answer to the question, the solution to the problem, the satisfaction to your heart's deepest desire. It's just more. More, more, more. But like the great poet, the notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, more problems. Right? That's true of all these things. More sex, more problems. More power, more problems. More doesn't seem to be helping our society because we got a lot of those things. And more of all that stuff doesn't seem to be making us more satisfied. Because here's the problem. What hooks you also needs to keep you. Make any sense? So if more is what hooks you into it, then you're going to constantly have to have more to stay with it. 
What hooks you is also what's going to have to satisfy you. So more now is not going to be enough in a few days. More in a few days is not going to be enough in a few weeks. There's a never-ending push for more, and then some more, and then some more. When is enough enough? What's crazy to me is that these three things, these little G gods, these little golden calves of our world, sex, money, and power, they're not new to our world. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas, he was a money-hungry swindler. He ruined his life because he was obsessed with money. Two of Jesus' other disciples demanded that they make him, or that he make them, as powerful as possible. Two of the most powerful men in the world, they said. And most of the people, especially the women who came to Jesus for healing, they came to him because they were used and abused sexually. Money, power, and sex, they are not new to our culture. They've always been little G-gods that we've bowed down to and worshipped. That was true in the garden, it was true in the church in Rome in the first century, and it's true today. But unless you plan on running up to the hills and living off the grid, somewhere in the mountains, chances are your life is going to be inundated with these things. Shoot, even if you do live off-grid, you still got to deal with these things, don't you? You can't just put your head in the sand and ignore this stuff or run away from this stuff. Nor should you want to. Because God doesn't want you to. You're going to hear me say that throughout this entire series. God doesn't want you to run or hide or repent of or try to completely rid yourself of these things or these desires. Our God is a pleasure-knowing, pleasure-creating, pleasure-giving God. Sex, money, and power, they're his idea. They were all created by him. And then I think joyfully and excitedly given to us by him. He wants us to drink deeply from these wells. All right, it's not as if, and you're going to have to forgive my language here, but little side note here. In a series about money, sex, and power, we're going to have to use some vocabulary that you normally don't hear in church, all right? But can you be more mature than like a preteen for me? The, the, the teenager said yes. The adults, I don't think I heard anybody. All right, here goes nothing. It's not as if God made Adam and Eve in the garden, and then without knowing it, Satan had made a penis and some boobies over here in the corner. And when God turned around, he all of a sudden ran over and stuck them on him. Like, gotcha now. I've wanted to say penis and boobies on this stage for several weeks. <laughs> Actually, I take that back. Longer, longer than that. But you see what I'm saying? It's not as if he made it good, and then when he turned around for a split second, Satan came in and, and destroyed it. That's not how it worked. On the seventh day, it says he rested, because what he saw, what he had made in its entirety, was all good. And guess what he made in his entirety? Us and our bodies. Guess what he made in its entirety? Our desire for power. Guess what he made in, in its entirety? The, the, the need for resources to be shared he made all of that, and it was all good. Now, they were twisted and distorted after the fact, but in and of themselves, at their base level, at the root, they are not bad things. They are incredibly good things. Incredibly good things. Satan didn't invent these things. Satan didn't introduce these things. God did. They are good gifts given from a good, good father. But what's crazy is these three things, money, sex, and power, more than anything else, they can go from being good gifts from God to being your God. I don't know why it works that way. But the greater the gift, the greater the likelihood it will become a God. 
So what do you do with all this stuff? What do you do with your idols? How do you stop trading God away for grass-eating cows or a bigger house or more raunchy porn or larger bank accounts or shinier toys? Well, when it comes to sex, money, and power, you can read through all of these books. That's fine. Or you can just pick up this book, the Bible. Because to be honest with you, when it comes to these issues and every other issue for that matter, God's words are the only ones that really matter. God's insight and God's perspective and God's opinion, it's the only one that really counts. Dr. Phil, Delilah, sex experts, the next generation of millionaires, you're all fine and good, but you're not God. They're not the ones who created the world. They're not the ones who invented sex. They're not the ones who have control and authority over all the resources in the world. God did, and God is. You with me? Psalm 24, 1. The earth, it's the Lord's, and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Proverbs 2.6, it's the Lord and the Lord alone who gives wisdom. From him come knowledge and understanding of all things. In, in light of these verses and so many others, it'd be in our best interest, don't you think, to listen to God, to turn to his book. He knows it all. He made it all. He can fix it all. He died to redeem and restore it all. Then let's, let's go to him for it all. Wouldn't you agree? Let me give you an example of this. All right, suppose I go out of town one weekend and ask you to house it for me and watch our dog, Copper. Well, you decide to shave Copper bald and let him run around the street all night long. Then you decide to throw the biggest kickoff NFL Broncos party the world's ever seen at my house on Thursday night. So there's food and paint and drinks and all kinds of things splattered all over my house. Well, I come home a little bit early and I see all this. Among the chaos and the mayhem, I find you, and as pastorally as I know how, I ask you, what were you thinking? Why did you do all of this? And you respond by saying rather smugly, well, I just did what I thought was best. Excuse me? What you thought was best? This isn't your house. That's not your dog. You don't have the right to do whatever you think is best. All of those things belong to me. Those things are under my control, and thus, you should have done what I thought was best. And I can't help but think the Lord feels the same way, don't you? You don't have the right to do what you think is best. It's not your body. It's not your earth. It's not your stuff. It's not your money. It's mine. And therefore, you should do what I think is best. How do you know what he thinks is best? Right here. Well, I don't believe in God. I, said, I don't trust the Bible. I think it's antiquated. I think it's totally outdated. We've, we've evolved past the need for this old school book. We're smart enough to figure this stuff out on our own. Really? Have you seen our world today? We're smart enough to figure out and properly handle the good, the good gifts of money, sex, and power, really, then how do you describe the mass confusion so many people are experiencing when it comes to their sexual identity? How do you describe the ever-increasing gap that exists between the world's wealthiest and the world's poorest? How do you describe the fact that more and more Americans have credit card debt because of stuff they don't need and stuff they can't afford? How do you describe the fact that more married men prefer to stare at a two-dimensional picture of a naked woman on a screen rather than lay with the wife who was in the bedroom right next to them? How do you describe all that? 
Because we can figure it out on our own. No, we figured it out, all right. We figured out exactly how to mess those good gifts up. We figured out how to make those good gifts God. And I think we're going to live to regret that trade forever. We need help, don't we? We need guidance. We need insight. We need wisdom. How do you handle money, sex, and power? They're a part of my life. They're a part of this world. They're all over the place. What do I do with them? We turn to God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture, the Bible, it's God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible, it's God-breathed. It's from his mouth, and it's useful for teaching you about all things, correcting you in all things, training you in what is right so that you, as a servant of God, will be thoroughly equipped to do everything in this life that you've been called to do. Every good work, like having sex, yeah, every good work. Every good work, like climbing the, the, the corporate ladder, yeah, every good work. Every good work, like taking my credit card out and buying some at the mall, every good work. This book speaks right to them all. The question is, are you living by the book? Because to live like Jesus, to live life to the fullest, to live life in a way where you are filled with life and the people around you are filled with life, you got to read and you got to live by the book. How do you properly handle? How do you effectively talk about and deal with these issues? Well, you got to read and you got to live by the book. How do you respond creatively to these issues and with grace and humility? How do you speak truth in love when it comes to all these issues? You got to read and you got to live by the book. How do you experience the wonderful depths of these good gifts? How do you dive deeply into money, sex, and power the way God intended it to be done? You read and you live by the book. You with me? So starting next week, we're going to dive headfirst into these three topics. Here's what the next nine weeks looks like. In terms of sex, we'll start that next week. We're going to talk about what God wants you to know, what Playboy wants you to think, and what your spouse wishes you would figure out. Can't wait for that week. That'll be fun. In terms of money, we're going to talk about why money really matters, or why it doesn't, why tithing really matters, or why it doesn't. And how to practically make a budget and use every single cent you earn for good. In terms of power, we're going to talk about where our power comes from. What real power looks like and what power uniquely enables us to do. You are not going to want to miss one of these weeks, I guarantee you. And you need to bring some people with you. We separate it out into two services. So there is room for growth in both services. Church, it's really up to you. Bring a friend. Bring a neighbor. Take that card that we handed out to you and share that with somebody. We're trying to talk about real, relevant things, and we're trying to figure out what does God have to say about it. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. So, as we kind of wrap up the sermon portion of this morning, you might criticize the Red Sox, and you should, for trading away Babe Ruth. You might praise the Colts, and you should, for trading away John Elway. But be careful. Don't fall prey to making a poor trade yourself because deep in our heart is a tendency to trade away God for other things but instead how about you take those other things money sex and power and instead of trading them for God how about you ask God what to do with them and again I think you're gonna be pleasantly surprised and I think you're gonna experience life in a way you hadn't before let me pray that over you and I'll ask the band to come on up and lead us in a few more songs God the issues of money sex and power they are everywhere they're in the books they're in the magazines, they're on the TV, Lord, they're in the advertisements. It's just all over the place. Money, sex, and power 
are the, the golden calves of our age, God. And your people were foolish back in the day to bow down to something they made and to something so fickle and fake and finite. And yet, Lord, I'm afraid that I do the same thing, that we all do the same thing, that we trade you in for something so much lesser. Our prayer over the next nine weeks, God, is that you would open our hearts and minds to your word, to your book. We want to know what you have to say about these things. We are excited to learn what is true and what is real and what is right as it pertains to things that matter to us and that matter to our world. Illuminate our minds to the wonders of your word, God, as the psalmist says. And would we be people of the book? Would we know how to handle the good gifts you have given to us because of the instructions you have given to us in the book. Make it so. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.